And this is, um, Jonah's one of those books that I think a lot of us probably are really familiar with, that we've grown up, you've grown up in church, you're really familiar with the story. It's this uh, incredible picture of a man who has been swallowed by a big fish and then spit back out after three days. And so almost every children's storybook Bible has uh, this depiction. And so we're really familiar with it. And it sounds, you know, if you think about that story, kind of terrifying and fun all at the same time. Could you imagine being swallowed by a whale for three days and living inside of it and wondering in darkness what was about to happen to you? I mean, uh, if someone could sort of make that into a ride at a theme park, I'm sure people would sign up for it. But here's the deal. Um, Here's the deal. What makes Jonah and this book such a masterpiece is that it's one of those books in which there's way more than what we see on the surface. There's more than meets the eye, we would say, to this book. And that's because most of the time when we pick up a book like this and we begin to read through it, we're just following like the narrative. We're following the plot and the storyline. And it becomes very easy to say, I've got it. I, I've, I've kind of got what, what's happening here. And actually, as we dive into this book, we've got to get below the surface because until we do, we're not going to really realize how scandalous this book really is. It's not a book, ultimately, that's about a fish. And it's ultimately not a book about this supernatural event where a man is swallowed up and then somehow is able to survive inside of that fish. It's actually a story about a God whose grace is so deep and so wide and so pervasive that until we are able to get a sense of that, then this book will remain a mystery to us. But when his grace starts to get into our hearts, it almost begins to do something offensive and scandalous and crazy because it is an absolute assault, this, this theme, the theme of this book, on anyone who thinks that they're religious. It's an assault on the hearts of people who say, I've got my life together. I'm a pretty good person. I come to church every single week. And yet it demands an answer to this question, do I really worship the Lord? Do I really love God? Or is it easy for me to walk in here Sunday after Sunday and to sing the songs to proclaim him with my lips all the while in my heart I remain far from him? This is how Jonah begins. And so let's look at the first 10 verses of chapter 1. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. And we'll read Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 10. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port and After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw their possessions into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. 
Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And so they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. They asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. Let's pray. Well, Father, you invite us to ask for big things. Um, you, you tell us to ask And then to expect that you would be a God who would do more than we ask and more than we could possibly imagine. And so once again, as we begin to look at your word as the people of God, we want to consider what it would mean for you to do more than all we could ask or imagine through the study of this book and a look at the heart of Jonah, a look at our own hearts, and a look at the heart of God. And we would say that the heart of God, that your love, your compassion, and your grace has got to be the most powerful force in the universe because it can rescue us when we're distraught, when we're despairing, when we're struggling with sin, when our hearts are far from you, even when we are running full speed in the opposite direction. And so, Lord God, I want us to see something happen through this series I want something to happen in my own heart so that the words that I sing would not be merely words, but that they would be coming from an overflow of expression of experience and intimacy with you. And only you can get us there. Only you can get me there, Lord. And so I pray that you would do far more than we could ask or imagine through this series and that we would be a people compelled towards mission as you draw us there with your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so this morning I want to talk about what it means to run away from God. And I want to talk about why we run away from God. And I want to talk about what God does about that. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story about Corey Tenboom. In 1947, Corey Tenboom was one of the most famous Christian speakers in the world. And part of the reason was because before World War II, she and her family lived in Holland. And when they got a sense of what was happening to their their Jewish friends and neighbors in the community, when they started to be deported by the Nazis, when the Nazis came into their town and started carting them off, they knew that that meant something terribly wicked and evil was happening to them. And so they knew they couldn't just stand by, they knew they had to do something about it. And so they created a room, a space in their house where they could hide their Jewish friends. And they began to feed them and they began to help them think about ways that they could possibly escape to the Americas. And yet, one day somebody found out what they were doing. And so Corey and her sister Betsy and her dad were deported and sent off to the very concentration camps that they were trying to help their Jewish friends avoid. And while they were there... Corey's father died, and her sister Betsy died, and it was only by a clerical error that Corey Tenboom ended up surviving herself. And so when the war ended, she had lost everything, every single person in her family. She had lost everything that was dear to her, totally stripped away. 
but, was all, but there was something that was always ringing in, the ears, uh, in her ears, and it was her, her sister Betsy's very last words before she died in that concentration camp. Her sister said, I want you to know, Corey, that there is no pit so deep that the grace of God does not run deeper still. And as she thought about those words, she knew that the grace that God had shown her in that Holocaust pit And most of us would say, that's got to be hell itself. I can't imagine anything worse than what those people went through. That she was able to look into that and say, that was a grace that I've actually needed all my life, what God was up to in that space. Because honestly, God's grace is not something that I'd ever earned. And she said, I knew what was really in my heart as a human being. And so if God could forgive me, if God could show grace to me, then that meant that nobody was outside of his reach. There is no pit so deep. And so she went back, not to Holland after the war, not to the United States. She went back to Germany, and she began to preach the gospel to the very people who had been responsible for the death of her family, the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. And so on this one day in 1947, she was in a church in Munich, And she began to preach about this gospel. And as she looked out over the crowd, she saw a man in the back, the back right of the congregation. And as she saw that man, he was dressed like everybody else, a suit and a tie and a hat. But when she saw him, she did not just see what he was wearing that day. She saw the old uniform. She saw the hat on his head with the skull and the crossbones. She saw the gun that used to be strapped to his back. She saw the smile on his face as he laughed as she and her sister Betsy had to run naked around the square in the concentration camp. She was literally seeing one of the men who had taken part in the murder of her sister Betsy. And so as she was done with her message, she saw a little row, a little line forming to come up front to meet her and say hello And this man that she recognized from the camp got into the line and was coming forward. And she said in that moment, I had no idea what to do. She began to plan her escape. She began to look for an exit. She began to pray, God, rescue me from this. This cannot happen. Please let him change his mind and leave. And he didn't. He kept coming forward closer and closer and closer until finally he was right in front of her. And she said... Honestly, I had no idea what to do in that moment. And this man extended his hand, and he said, You may not remember me, but I was, I was one of the guards in the camp that was responsible for your family's death, and I know that what I did was wrong. And I know now that the grace of Jesus Christ is my only hope, and I know that he has forgiven me. But the reason I'm here right now extending my hand to you is to ask you this important question. Would you be able to find somewhere in your heart to forgive me as well? And she said, I did not know what to do. I totally froze. I want to ask you, how would you handle a moment like that? I honestly don't know what I would do if I were in a situation where God had called me to do something so impossible something so unreasonable. And yet, what I believe is that it's moments like that 
that show something very fundamental about our hearts. And the way we respond in those moments teaches us a large, gives us a large picture of what our love and our affection has really been marked by. Is it my own hope? Is it my own self-righteousness? Or is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the book of Jonah starts with a moment just like that. In verse 1 it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. And so this book starts right away establishing for us two kingdoms. A kingdom of self and a kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we have his plans, his vision, and his direction for what he is up to in the world. And in the kingdom of self, we have all the things that I believe and sense are true in the world that are important to me. And one of the most basic things that I learned about being a Christian early on in my faith, was through this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And in that booklet, there was a diagram, and it talked about having the self-directed life. And so you can see up there on the left, the self-directed life is one where I am on the throne, that Christ is outside of my life. And this is where I run to for refuge. But on the other side, it's the Christ-directed life. And that means that being Christian is fundamentally about me removing myself from the throne of my self-directed life so that now I have a new captain with Jesus on the throne and that his interests are becoming my interests and that all of my desires and my will and my thoughts and understanding are coming into alignment with his plans. And so everybody sort of agrees with this diagram. We look at that and we say, of course, yes, I want that, until God begins to move in front of you with things that seem unreasonable and impossible and too big and too ridiculous to even consider, like having a Nazi officer responsible for killing your family standing in front of you asking for forgiveness. Then we say, time out, and we're not sure who should be on the throne in those moments. And so the first thing that we have to come to, to, to grips with, in this book, in the book of Jonah, is that God is not bashful about asking the seemingly impossible, that he expresses the nature of his kingdom and his mission and his agenda in categories that blow our minds. First of all, you need to know that for Jonah to be called to Nineveh is to be called to the people of Assyria. And the Assyrians were probably the most brutal and wicked people on the face of the earth at this time. They had the biggest and baddest and strongest army that you could possibly imagine. And when they took over a country, they didn't just dominate them, they humiliated them. And so they would make you take your, your family and friends, the heads that had been de- decapitated, and put them on a pole and march around the city. They would literally flay people so that they could skin them and hang their, their skins up in Assyrian walls as artwork. I mean, these people were brutal and cruel and disgusting. And right in the middle of Assyria is the capital city of Nineveh. And this is where Jonah is called to go. You guys get the picture of this? Did you just get the picture of this for just a second? That what 
Jonah is being called to do here is unreasonable. It's unthinkable. And God is not bashful about calling his people towards that. At the very same time, Hosea and Amos are also prophesying along with Jonah. And they are proclaiming a future for their people where they will be exiled and ruined and humiliated, where their family and friends will be stripped of their possessions and sent off at the hands of the Assyrians. So this is the framework that the people of God have when they think about Assyria. And God says, I want you to go right into the heart of this brutal nation. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he said, go to this wicked city. Go right into the middle of that city and preach to them. And Jonah ran away. That's what seems reasonable to us when we look at this. And in some ways, the book of Jonah is a really simple story. It's the book of a man running away from God. And it's also the book about a God who pursues him. And what that means is that Jonah is one of the most concrete ways that we can understand what sin and grace are really all about. Like, I know we know those words, sin and grace, but when we talk about specifically, concretely, in their essence, what they mean, Jonah gives us a great picture, and it helps us flesh it out. Because sin, at the end of the day, is running away from God. And grace, grace is God's effort to pursue and rescue us and intercept self-destructive behavior. So this week... We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about what it means to run from God. And next week, as we unpack the rest of chapter 1, we're going to look at grace. Sin, grace, and then repentance we'll look at in week 3. And so, first, how do we run away from God? And all we need to know is really basic, and we've got to be honest about it. It's right here in the text. And first of all, we see that one of the ways that we run, or the way that we run from God, is rooted in self refuge. It means that when things don't make sense to us, what God's up to, what he's calling us to do is too hard or difficult or it cuts too much against the grain of the world that we live in. What is our first place that we run and try to make sense of that and trust in? It's ourselves, self-refuge. So if we're honest about what God is asking Jonah to do, what are the chances that he would be successful? Think about that. Go to the biggest, baddest, meanest, most powerful city in the world. Walk right into the middle of it and tell everyone to repent and turn to God. By our standards, by our standards, if we're self-refuge, that seems totally unreasonable, totally irrational. Irrational. Irrational? Irrational. You know what I'm trying to say. So imagine... But imagine if you were a Jewish rabbi living in the middle of World War II, being asked to go into Berlin and to preach repentance and to tell them to turn away from their crimes. Like, what is the best thing that could happen if you did that? I mean, the very best outcome is that they would deride you and mock you and throw tomatoes at you or dead cats or something that they would mock you. That's what the, the very best outcome if you were to, in that situation. But the worst outcome, and probably the one that's most likely, would be incarceration and death. That's the, that's the most likely thing, and this is what Jonah is being asked to do. And so what does that mean for us? 
I think we need to really let that reality sink in for a minute. Just for a minute to realize that what God is up to and that what he has always been up to in enlisting us and redefining us as the people of God is that he is quite comfortable with impossible odds and impossible mission. He did that with Abraham. He did that with Moses. He did that with David. He did that with the prophets. He did that with the first church in Acts and the the apostles. Therefore, being called to do impossible things with your marriages and with the gospel and in this community and with your finances and your time and your resources is the defining characteristic that the community of God is meant to manifest and show and reveal in the world. And so I just want to ask you, as you start to consider, like being a part of a calling like that, are you on board? Are you all right with that? Or are there ways in which even right now, you want to draw little lines in the sand and say, I mean, I'll do this and this and this, but right there, no more. I, will, I just will not cross that line. And I would say that any way that we attempt to do that shows us a way that we run to self-refuge. During the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War, there was a general uh, who decided that he needed one regiment of men to go forward first and to be the first ones to draw enemy fire. And that that would allow him to distract his enemy from what he really wanted to do, which was to bring other regiments around them and to sort of squeeze them into a vice. And so as the general was beginning to put his troops together in that regiment to send them to receive the first fire, to be the first line of attack, how did that play out? How do you think the general gave those orders? Does he go and sit down with every one of those young soldiers and say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to ask you to do something really hard. It's going to look dangerous. It's going to look impossible. It's even going to look like a suicide mission. But I want you to know that I have a plan. And here's, here's all the components of the plan. And it's going to work out. Let me just show you A to B to C. And then after he explains the whole plan, does he sit down with them and comfort them and say, but I want you to know I love every single one of, these, of the members of my troops, of my army, and I care about you all the same. And then does he give them a hug and pray for them and say, it's going to be okay. I love you. No. That's not how a general works. What does the soldier on the front line hear when it's time to go? They hear one word. Charge! That's it. They don't get a word of comfort. They don't get the hug. They don't get the plan. They get charge. That's what they get. And what enables them to go? In a good army, what enables a soldier to take that step forward is their refuge is in the character and in the promise and the record of their general. And so they say, we've been through battle with this guy before. We know he's smart. We know he's wise. We know he's good. And we know he cares about every one of us. And so they take refuge in that and they go. And so the fundamental movement of the Christian heart is this. God, you can be trusted. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't need the full story. I don't need all the plans. 
in any of the ways in which we minimize that, that God might be calling us to trust him in the midst of something difficult and to serve sacrificially, to give generously, to go, go boldly, that any time we minimize, minimize that or justify that, that becomes an indicator of ultimate refuge. My ultimate refuge is self. And that's the first step towards sin. You know, when God first started to call people to himself and to gather a family, he said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. There's no word of comfort. There's no word of explanation. And do you know what Abraham says? He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so he goes. He goes trusting in the record and the character and the goodness of God. You know, this is an amazing idea. This idea, uh, as it strikes Jonah, that you, you can put yourself into his position and realize that God may very well want Nineveh to repent, and that could be a good thing. But the way I see it is that if they prosper and if they are saved, then that means that the people of God and their future is very much in jeopardy. And so when, God, when, no, when, when Jonah looks at God's plan, his will, he sees it diverging from this calling to go to Nineveh and to preach repentance. And so that's confusing to him. But in that moment, he does not run to God with his anxiety and his fear. He runs to self, and he runs away from God. And so secondly we got to ask the question, why? What is underneath it for Jonah? Well, chapter 1 doesn't really tell us very much about that. But chapter 4 does. And in chapter 4, Jonah is revisiting this with God. And he has watched the incredible thing happen. The impossible thing has happened. He has gone into Nineveh, and he has preached repentance, and they have responded and said, yes, we will follow God. And so he is, in chapter 4, verse 2, talking to God about that. And here's what he says. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee. I knew you would do something like this. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And so here is the astonishing reason that Jonah takes off. It wasn't because that he was afraid of the tomatoes being thrown at him. He wasn't even afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of failure. What he was afraid of was being successful, that it would actually work, and that if they responded to this word of judgment, then they would also have the opportunity to repent and to turn from their sin. And Jonah despises the people of Nineveh. He despises the Assyrians. That's what's in his heart. And he wanted them dead. He wanted them destroyed. He didn't want them to have the opportunity to experience grace. And so here we see the sin behind the sin. It's not just that he ran to self-refuge, but behind that is the sin of self-righteousness, and it's pretty serious. And there's something in the Bible that Paul says is called self-righteousness in Romans chapter 10. You might have that verse on the screen where he says that every human being 
goes about trying to patch together a righteousness of their own of some sort. It means that we all have this desire inside of us to elevate, to feel superior to someone else in some way. And it's not that that we're always conscious of it, and we're not always aware of how we're doing it, but there's a strategy that I'm trying to come up with to make myself propped up that I can feel better about myself as I look down on you and find something bad about you. And Jonah's particular brand of self-righteousness is nationalistic pride and racism. It means, I love Israel, death to Nineveh. My tribe, my people are the only ones worthy of God's goodness and love. And so there's nothing wrong, we would say, with love for country, loving the people that live in our country. But in this particular situation, Jonah is rooting for this people, another country, to not be able to experience God's grace. He is rooting for them to spiritually perish. And so if we ever begin to elevate something higher in our heart like that, then we have an idol. And this idol is the idol of selfish racism and, and bigotry and nationalism. And now we would say that there's lots of ways that we can practice self-righteousness. On the other hand, you could be somebody that looks at people who are racist and who are bigots and say, you know, come on, look at these people. And in your own personal self-enlightenment, you could stand up very high and look down on people who, who do that sort of thing. And it makes you feel better about yourself. And what we would say, there's a million ways to do this. A million ways that we can practice self-righteousness. If we are educated, we can look down on people and say, I mean, look at the kind of drivel that is on television. Look at the kind of pop culture stuff that we see on TV and the books that people are reading. And we, put our, we, we, we look down our nose on other people. I was in the, the gym the other day, and there was a music video that was playing. And it was like some boy band. And I, and I had the thought to myself, I mean, is this really what music has come to these days? Who listens to this garbage? What am I doing in a really simple way? I'm like, you know, I have the more refined musical palette uh, than anybody else. And if you listen to that, you you know, and and we do this all the time. Look at these people who are late. Look at the people who don't serve in the nursery. Look at the people who do this and this and this. All these ways. And what we're doing is establishing some baseline for where I'm better than you. And here's the deal. If you are breathing in this room, then you are capable of doing that about anything. And you are doing that about anything that you can use to feel superior to other people. And when we do that, when that self-righteousness becomes a part of the soil of our heart, it creates a resistance to being able to love and give grace to other people. It puts you on the sidelines It keeps you from serving. It causes you to run away from the gospel. So here is Jonah, and suddenly he is not in a position to preach grace. He couldn't call people to repentance from their sin and to accept God's mercy because he was a stranger to it himself. And so do you know what makes people bold with the gospel? It's when the love of God has captured them to the core. And I think that that's the only thing ultimately that gets us outside of ourselves in mission. It's, it's not our personality. It's not our gifting. It's not where we score on the Enneagram. We only take risks to the, to the extent that God's love 
has eradicated self-righteousness. We only run into the mission and not away from it when we realize that there is no basis for me to feel superior over you. That was what Corey Tenboom was wrestling with on the stage as she looked at this Nazi guard. Am I really better than you? I feel like I am, but I know my heart, and I don't know what to do. And because of his self-righteousness, Jonah in this moment was gutless. Well, here's the thing. Number three, and we're going to actually look at this more later, uh, next week, I think. We're going to dive into this a little bit more. But what I want you to see this morning is that where we run, when we run to self-refuge, and when self-righteousness is the guiding part of our heart, when that's left unchecked in the human heart, when it's not atoned for, when it's not repented of, then it takes us to places of self-resignation and ruin. And it becomes extensive and pervasive and inescapable. Jonah, three times in chapter 1, says that he is running away from the Lord. Four times, it says that he is going down, down, down. Down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the sea, and down into the belly of this fish. What is that trajectory when we run away from God? It's down. It's a trajectory towards self-resignation and ruin. He gives up any kind of hope and throws himself into the sea. And his running is extensive. He gets on a boat headed for Tarshish, literally as far away from God and his mission as he possibly can. It's 2,500 miles away from where Nineveh was. He could have stopped in Crete. He could have stopped in Cyprus. It wasn't far enough. He ran the furthest away from God that he could possibly go. He wanted no business with what God was calling him to do. And that's because even the most faithful servant, when there's disobedience and unchecked self-righteousness, can become more and more calloused. And that's what happens for Jonah. He's literally asleep in the boat calloused and unresponsive to the things going on around him. And so here's what I want us to think about as we move forward in this series, is here is this portrait of a man who has gone from being one of the most regarded, one of the most highly religious, most established spiritual leaders in the community, a prophet of God, and now he is running towards self-refuge and self-righteousness, and he is unresponsive and calloused. And next week, we're going to see how that leads him into the bottom of a pit of self-resignation and ruin. And so as you look at this story, as we start to unpack this, like you should be asking the question, why in the world did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Why did he send Jonah? This seems like the worst prophet ever. I mean, look at this guy. But the reason that this story is so powerful for us, I think, is because ultimately this book is not about the people of Nineveh. This book was not written to the people of Nineveh. It was written to us, the people of God. And it's written to us to see that in the heart of Jonah, there is a mirror reflecting back to us the same defining characteristics and makeup of our own hearts. 
And that here is a people who gathered every Sabbath to hear God's word, and yet they were rebelling against him and presuming upon his grace. A people saying, we want your grace, we want your benefits, but what we really don't want is you. We want to run from you. And so Jonah is this mirror that reflects our own hearts to ourselves in the person of Jonah. And so what I hope from this book is that we would begin to sense and see and be honest about all the different ways that we run. But then in our running, we would begin to see something even greater than that. And that that would begin to change our hearts. And that's that there's a God running after us and pursuing us in the running. And he would show us something even greater than our sin, that though our sin be extensive and pervasive and inescapable and leading us to self-resignation and self-ruin, that there is something greater, and it's the grace of God in the rescue of Jesus. Hey, listen to Matthew 12 as we, we begin to close. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And so while this book is ultimately not about Nineveh, and it's not about a fish, and it's not even ultimately about Jonah, it's about the glory of the one who is greater than Jonah. And that's because when Jonah jumped into the sea, he was doing that to atone for the mistakes and the sin that he was responsible for. But when the greater Jonah comes on the scene, when Jesus comes on the scene, and he plunges himself into death itself for three days. He begins to substitute and atone and unite us to him in resurrection power. I want you to think about Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, I was just thinking about this this morning. And here's Paul who talked about this self-righteousness that used to characterize his heart. And he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish. What he's doing is he's stacking all those things in his life that he used to say, that makes me better than you. That makes me have God's favor in a way that I deserve it and you don't. And now he's seeing the greater Jonah. He's seeing that Jesus himself plunged himself into the belly of the earth, innocent to rescue and atone for his sin. And he's seeing that there is a righteousness now that he could have in Christ that would be far superior. And so he says, and I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You know what motivates Paul to be able to give his whole life to do the impossible, to share in Christ's sufferings? It's because of what Jesus had done for him on the cross and the grace that he experienced in receiving new righteousness, this other righteousness he had tried to build for himself just paled in comparison. 
And now he has the real treasure. Now he has the real Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is why I'm amazed by this book. I hope you will be too, because in it I see myself. In Jonah, I see the dangers, the ugliness of my own heart. And it reminds me that what I really love is far too often not God himself. And yet it also reminds me that I can never outrun his grace. That if God is willing to rescue Ninevites, that if God is able to rescue running prophets, then there's hope for someone like me too. You know, Corey Tenboom, she understood that. And while she was sitting there in that room, and she, that man held his hand out to her, and she saw him staring back, she said, I stood there for what felt like an eternity. And yet I knew my sister's words were so true. There is no pit so deep that the grace of God is not deeper still. And she knew if God could forgive her, if God would go down in the pit for her, then he had gone down in that pit for that man too. And so she reached out her hand and she said, I, know I may not have the feeling of compassion that I need to have right now, but God, give me the ability to do what I can't do. And she reached out her hand and she grabbed it and she said, Brother, I do forgive you, body and soul. And I receive you as a brother in the Lord. Now that just does not happen outside of the glorious grace of God impacting the sinner's heart and bringing us home into the family of God. So let's pray together that God would do something remarkable like that in our hearts through this series. Let's pray. God, we don't want to just sing the words. We don't want to just gather here each week and say, no God, grow together, reach our world. No God, grow together, reach our world. We want to treasure Christ. We want to be so united to you in your life, death, and resurrection. We want to be so compelled by the things that you love and are interested that we would gladly share in the sufferings in this lifetime. I want that to be true of my heart. And yet there's miles and miles to go. And so, Lord God, would you use your word, would you use your spirit, and would you continue to pursue me and everyone in this room that we would run away from self-refuge, that we would stop trusting in our own power, in our own understanding, and in our own sense of what's right and wrong in the world, but instead we would come to the eternal God and be found in your grace, your grace that is greater than all our sin. So God, do that in our lives this morning and throughout this series. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.